Hey everyone, welcome back. This is Java Sips and Biscotti with Charlie. I hope you had a chance to listen to episode four. I read What Waits in Darkness by Loretta Burrow. That was a short story that I had found in a much larger book that I had bought while I was hitchhiking through California. So if you would like to hear more about that, go peep episode four and then join us for more in episode five. Before I start, I want to share some announcements. I started a Patreon. So if you like this podcast and you want to support us or you want some extra information, um, extra goods, I I guess, um, go like, share, subscribe uh, on Patreon. I plan to do AMAs, I plan to post blooper reels, I plan to, um, yeah, make that a place where the listeners can interact with the podcast more. I have this idea to post Mad Libs and listeners can share their amazing vocab and I will assemble it into a pre-written story and maybe if it becomes a thing i'll start reading them at the beginning of the episodes before we jump in for a little laughter and wholesome fun i also started an instagram for me charlie you can find me at charlie r dot mendel that's c-h-a-r-l-i-e-r dot m-e-n-d-e-l You can follow me there to find out when I'm posting episodes next. I plan to find the funniest pictures about reading and post them up there. Um, Maybe I will post live recordings of myself so you can see how awkward I truly am as I try to be normal with y'all. But that's all the announcements I have for you today. Back to our scheduled programming today, I have another story for you from Haruki Murakami. Uh, The title is called The Second Bakery Attack. Um, It's a humorous and odd story. I believe in Japan it was adapted into a movie. Um, It's also about life lessons that come about in a strange manner, but um, it's about a man and his wife who wake up in the middle of the night with extreme hunger pains. And these extreme hunger pains eventually end up leading them to uh, do some pretty drastic things to satiate themselves. And um, I thought I would prelude the story with a journal entry that kind of similarly resonates with that concept. In my own personal life, I have been going through some things and some of the ways that I try to cope is through cathartic journaling and I try to be as raw and as open and honest as possible because I feel that's when I can truly really see where I'm standing, where I'm at more objectively and maybe I can contrive some kind of resolution from that or solution from that. So without further ado, I'll read this journal entry to you 
And then after a word from our sponsors, we'll get to the second bakery attack by Haruki Murakami. And then I will join you at the end for some small commentary and remind you, you can always email me at javasipsandbiscotti at gmail.com to give me your input. If you have short stories you want to write, send them to me. I would love to read them on the podcast with your permission, of course. And uh, yeah, here we go. I keep imagining about the day we'll meet again. I see adventure capped by fire's light among a starry sky and a ground so dry. A smile draws across my lips when I imagine of playful moments and words and actions that speak to the attraction we share. I hope for all the things to fall in place like it was written previously or outlined in the universe. But I don't truly believe that. In my years, I know it's nice enough to be able to still have an imagination, but to not value those ideations more than a passing cloud. I cherish the attention I was given, but no delusions reside within me that it was nothing more than a temporary chemical romance. Our words are only as good as the US dollar, They depreciate with time and little chance of saving without action. Time has also taught me to take most words spoken to me with a grain of salt, unless they be uttered in poetry or song. Actions are the only true purveyor on someone's character or nature. Yet, no matter the amount of logic or cathartic journaling, I still imagine about the day we'll meet again. Since I met you, you've wavered in and out of my mind. I had equated you with the replacement of my, at the time, recently deceased golden retriever, who not only shared your color hair, but also your gentle eyes. Like my own version of Casper the Friendly Ghost, only the most loyal, and loving being in my life left his dog body and materialized as a handsome, strong man who came to give me the life I sensed my dog wanted for me. As he had seen me in every hardship I surpassed and claimed to every gain I met by those hardships. No, while I can drum up narratives that tug up my heartstrings, I know I'm only torturing myself with the hope of this to become real. I try to imagine the worst things about you to counteract the infatuation. For instance, I've convinced myself that you hate dogs, have poor hygiene, and that you probably have some strong issues with science or evolution. However, I feel the latter statement I know to be untrue by what information you have inquired from me before. I go back to sitting with my thoughts and I close my eyes. Wherever the compass needle shall come to lay, may it be that it is my own desires I obey 
and not false mirages on a sunny desert day. Without further ado, The Second Bakery Attack by Haruki Murakami. I'm still not sure I made the right choice when I told my wife about the bakery attack. But then, it might not have been a question of right and wrong, which is to say that wrong choices can produce right results and vice versa. I myself have adopted the position that, in fact, we never choose anything at all. Things happen, or not. If you look at it this way, it just so happens that I told my wife about the bakery attack. I hadn't been planning to bring it up. I'd forgotten all about it. But it wasn't one of those now that you mention it kind of things either. What reminded me of the bakery attack was an unbearable hunger. It hit just before two o'clock in the morning we had eaten a light supper at 6, crawled into bed at 9.30, and gone to sleep. For some reason, we woke up exactly at the same moment. A few moments later, the pang struck with the force of the tornado in Wizard of Oz. These were tremendous, overpowering hunger pangs. Our refrigerator contained not a single item that could be technically categorized as food. We had a bottle of French dressing, six cans of beer, two shriveled onions, a stick of butter, and a box of refrigerator deodorizer. With only two weeks of married life behind us, we had yet to establish a precise conjugal understanding with regard to the rules of dietary behavior, let alone anything else. I had a job in a law firm at the time and she was doing secretarial work at a design school. I was either 28 or 29. Why can't I remember the exact year we married? And she was two years and eight months younger. Groceries were the last things on our minds. We both felt too hungry to go back to sleep, but it just hurt to lie there. On the other hand, we were also too hungry to do anything useful. We got out of bed and drifted into the kitchen, ending up across the table from one another. What could have caused such violent hunger pangs? We took turns opening the refrigerator door and hoping, but no matter how many times we looked inside, the contents never changed. Beer and onions and butter and dressing and deodorizer. It may have been possible to saute the onions in the butter, but there was no chance those two shriveled onions could fill our empty stomachs. Onions are meant to be eaten with other things. They are not the kind of food you use to satisfy an appetite. Would Madame care for some French dressing sauteed in deodorizer? I expected her to ignore my attempt at humor, and she did. Let's get in the car and look for an all-night restaurant, I said. There must be one on the highway. She rejected that suggestion. We can't. You're not supposed to go out after midnight. She was old fashioned that way. 
I breathed once and said, I guess not. Whenever my wife expressed such an opinion or thesis back then, it reverberated in my ears with the authority of a revelation. Maybe that's what happens with newlyweds, I don't know. But when she said this to me, I began to think that this was a special hunger, not one that could be satisfied through the mere expedient of taking it to an all-night restaurant on the highway. A special kind of hunger. And what might that be? I can present it here in the form of a cinematic image. One, I'm in a little boat floating on a quiet sea. Two, I look down and in the water I see the peak of a volcano thrusting up from the ocean floor. Three, the peak seems pretty close to the water's surface, but just how close I cannot tell. Four, this is because the hyper-transparency of the water interferes with the perception of distance. This is a fairly accurate description of the image that arose in my mind during the two or three seconds between the time my wife said she refused to go to an all-night restaurant and I agreed with my, I guess not. Not being Sigmund Freud, I was of course unable to analyze with any precision what this image signified, but I knew intuitively that it was a revelation, which is why the almost grotesque intensity of my hunger notwithstanding, I all but automatically agreed with her thesis or declaration. We did the only thing we could do, open the beer. It was a lot better than eating those onions. She didn't like beer much, so we divided the cans, two for her, four for me. While I was drinking the first one, she searched the kitchen shelves like a squirrel in November. Eventually, she turned up a package that had four butter cookies in the bottom. They were leftovers, soft and soggy. We each ate two, savoring every crumb. It was no use. Upon this hunger of ours, as vast and boundless as the Sinai Peninsula, the butter cookies and the beer left not a trace. Time oozed through the dark like a lead weight in a fish's gut. I read the print on the aluminum beer cans. I stared at my watch. I looked at the refrigerator door. I turned pages of yesterday's paper. I used the edge of a postcard to scrape together the cookie crumbs on the tabletop. I've never been this hungry before in my whole life, she said. I wonder if it has anything to do with being married. Maybe, I said, or maybe not. While she hunted for more fragments of food, I leaned over the edge of my boat and looked down at the peak of the underwater volcano. The clarity of the ocean water all around the boat gave me an unsettled feeling, as if a hollow had opened somewhere behind my solar plexus a hermetically sealed cavern that had neither entrance nor exit. Something weird about this sense of absence, this sense of existential reality of non-existence, resembled the paralyzing fear you might feel when you climb to the top of a high steeple. This connection between hunger and acrophobia was a new discovery for me. 
which is when it occurred to me that I had once before had the same kind of experience. My stomach had just been as empty then. When? Oh sure, that was the time of the bakery attack, I heard myself saying. The bakery attack? What are you talking about? And so it started. I once attacked a bakery, a long time ago. Not a big bakery, not famous. The bread was nothing special. Not bad either. One of those ordinary little neighborhood bakeries right in the middle of a block of shops. Some old guy ran it, who did everything himself. Baked in the morning, and when he sold out, he closed up for the day. If you were going to attack a bakery, why that one? Well, there was no point in attacking a big bakery. All we wanted was bread, not money. We were attackers, not robbers. We? Who's we? My best friend back then, 10 years ago. We were so broke we couldn't buy toothpaste. Never had enough for food. We did some pretty awful things to get our hands on food. The bakery attack was born. I don't get it, she looked at me hard. Her eyes could have been searching for a faded star in the morning sky. Why didn't you just get a job? You could have worked after school. That would have been easier than attacking bakeries. We didn't want to work. We were absolutely clear on that. Well, you're working now, aren't you? I nodded and sucked some more beer. Then I rubbed my eyes. A kind of beery mud had oozed into my brain and was struggling with my hunger pangs. Times change, people change, I said. Let's go back to bed. We've got to get up pretty early. I'm not sleepy. I want you to tell me about the bakery attack. There's nothing to tell. No action, no excitement. Was it a success? I gave up on sleep and ripped open another beer. Once she gets interested in a story, she has to hear it all the way through. That's just the way she is. Well, it was kind of a success and kind of not. We got what we wanted, but as a holdup, it didn't work. The baker gave us bread before we could even take it from him. Free? Not exactly, no. That's the hard part, I shook my head. The baker was a classical music freak, and when we got there, he was listening to an album of Wagner overtures. So he made us a deal. If we would listen to the record all the way through, we could take as much bread as we liked. I talked it over with my buddy, and we figured, okay, it wouldn't be work in the purest sense of the word, and it wouldn't hurt anybody. So we put our knives back in our bags, pulled up a couple chairs, and listened to the overtures of Townhauser and the Flying Dutchman. And after that, you got your bread? Right. Most of what you had in the shop. Stuffed it in our bag and took it home. Kept us fed for maybe four or five days. I took another sip. Like soundless waves from an undersea earthquake, my sleepiness gave my boat a long, slow rocking. Of course, we accomplished our mission. We got the bread, but you couldn't have said you could. We got the bread, but you couldn't say we had committed a crime. It was more of an exchange. 
We listened to Wagner with him, and in return we got our bread. Legally speaking, it was more like a commercial transaction. But listening to Wagner isn't work, she said. Oh, no, absolutely not. If the baker had insisted we washed his dishes or clean his windows or something, we would have turned him down. But he didn't. All he wanted from us was to listen to his Wagner LP from beginning to end. Nobody could have anticipated that. I mean, Wagner? It was like the baker put a curse on us. Now that I think of it, we should have refused. We should have threatened him with our knives and taken the damn bread. Then there wouldn't have been any problem. You had a problem? I rubbed my eyes again. Sort of. Nothing you could put your finger on. But things started to change after that. It was like a turning point. Like, I went back to the university, and I graduated, and I started working for the firm and studying for the bar exam. And I met you and got married. I never did anything like that again. No more bakery attacks. That's it? Yep. That's all there was to it. I drank the last of my beer. Now all six cans were gone. Six pull tabs lay in the ashtray like scales from a mermaid. Of course, it wasn't true that nothing had happened as a result of the bakery attack. There were plenty of things that you could easily have put your finger on, but I didn't want to talk about them with her. So this friend of yours, what's he doing now? I have no idea. Something happened. Some nothing kind of thing, and we stopped hanging around together. I haven't seen him since. I don't know what he's doing. For a while, she didn't speak. She probably sensed that I wasn't telling her the whole story. But she wasn't ready to press me on it. Still, she said, that's why you two broke up, isn't it? The bakery attack. It was the direct cause. Maybe so. I guess it was more intense than either of us realized. We talked about the relationship of the bread to Wagner for days after that. We kept asking ourselves if we had made the right choice. We couldn't decide. Of course, if you look at it sensibly, we did make the right choice. Nobody got hurt. Everybody got what he wanted. The baker, I still can't figure out why he did what he did, but anyway, he succeeded with his Wagner propaganda, and we succeeded in stuffing our faces with bread. But even so, we had this feeling that we had made a terrible mistake. And somehow, this mistake has just stayed there, unresolved, casting a dark shadow on our lives. That's why I use the word curse. It's true. It was like a curse. Do you think you still have it? I took the six pull tabs from the ashtray and arranged them into an aluminum ring the size of a bracelet. Who knows? I don't know. I bet the world is full of curses. It's hard to tell which curse makes any one thing go wrong. That's not true, she looked right at me. You can tell, if you think about it. Unless you, yourself, personally break the curse, it'll stick with you like a toothache. It'll torture you till you die. And not just you, me too. You? Well, I'm your best friend now, aren't I? Why do you think we're both so hungry? I never, ever once in my life felt hunger like this until I married you. Do you think it's abnormal? 
your curse, it's working on me too. I nodded. Then I broke up the ring of pull tabs and put them back in the ashtray. I didn't know if she was right, but I did feel she was on to something. The feeling of starvation was back, stronger than ever, and it was giving me a deep headache. Every twinge of my stomach was being transmitted to the core of my head by a clutch cable, as if my insides were equipped with all kinds of complicated machinery. I took another look at my undersea volcano. The water was even clearer than before, much clearer. Unless you looked closely, you might not even notice it was there. It felt as though the boat were floating in midair, with absolutely nothing to support it. I could see every little pebble on the bottom. All I had to do was reach out and touch them. We've only been living together for two weeks, she said. But all this time, I've been feeling some kind of weird presence. She looked directly into my eyes and brought her hands together on the tabletop, her fingers interlocking. Of course, I didn't know until now that it was a curse. This explains everything. You are under a curse. What kind of presence? Like, there's this heavy, dusty curtain that hasn't been washed for years hanging down from the ceiling. Maybe it's not a curse. Maybe it's just me, I said and smiled. She did not smile. No, it's not you, she said. Okay, suppose you're right. Suppose it's a curse. What can I do about it? Attack another bakery. Right away. Now. It's the only way. Now? Yes, now. While you're still hungry, you have to finish what you left unfinished. But it's the middle of the night. Would a bakery be open now? We'll find one. Tokyo's a big city. There must be at least one all-night bakery. We got into my Corolla and started drifting around the streets of Tokyo at 2.30 a.m. looking for a bakery. There we were, me clutching to the steering wheel, she in the navigator's seat, the two of us scanning the street like hungry eagles in search of prey. Stretched out on the back seat, long and stiff as a dead fish, was a Remington automatic shotgun. Its shells rustled around in the dryly pocket of my wife's windbreaker. We had two black ski masks in the glove compartment. Why my wife owned a shotgun, I had no idea. Or ski masks. Neither of us had ever skied. But she didn't explain, and I didn't ask. Married life is weird, I felt. Impeccably equipped. We were nevertheless unable to find an all-night bakery. I drove through the empty streets, from Yoyogi to Shinjuku, onto Yotsawa and Akasaka, Ayoma, Haru, Ropangai, Daikanyama, and Shibayo. Late night Tokyo had all kinds of people and shops, but no bakeries. Twice we were encountered by patrol cars. One was huddled at the side of the road, trying to look inconspicuous. The other slowly overtook us and crept past, finally moving off into the distance. Both times I grew damp under the arms, but my wife's concentration never faltered. She was looking for that bakery. Every time she shifted the angle of her body, the shotgun shells, 
rustled like buckwheat husks in an old-fashioned pillow. Let's forget it, I said. There aren't any bakeries open at this time of night. You've got to plan for this kind of thing or else stop the car. I slammed on the brakes. This is the place, she said. The shops along the street had their shutters rolled down, forming dark, silent walls on either side. A barbershop sign hung in the dark like a twisted, chilling glass eye. There was a bright McDonald's hamburger sign some 200 yards ahead, but nothing else. I don't see any bakery, I said. Without a word, she opened the glove compartment and pulled out a roll of cloth back tape. Holding this, she stepped out of the car. I got out on my side. Kneeling at the front, she tore off a length of tape and covered the numbers on the license plate. Then she went around to the back and did the same. There was a practiced efficiency to her movements. I stood on the curb staring at her. We are going to take that McDonald's, she said as coolly as if she was announcing what we would have for dinner. McDonald's is not a bakery, I pointed out to her. It's like a bakery, she said. Sometimes you have to compromise. Let's go. I drove to the McDonald's and parked in the lot. She handed me the blanket-wrapped shotgun. I've never fired a gun in my life, I protested. You don't have to fire it. Just hold it, okay? Do as I say. We walk right in, and as soon as they say, welcome to McDonald's, we slip on our masks. Got that? Sure, but then you shove the gun in their faces and make all the workers and customers get together fast, and I'll do the rest. But how many hamburgers do you think we'll need? 30? I guess so. With a sigh, I took the shotgun and rolled back the blanket a little. The thing was as heavy as a sandbag and as black as a dark night. Do we really have to do this? I asked, half to her and half to myself. Of course we do. Wearing a McDonald's hat, the girl behind the counter flashed me a McDonald's smile and said, welcome to McDonald's. I hadn't thought that girls would work at McDonald's late at night, so the sight of her confused me for a second, but only for a second. I caught myself and pulled on the mask. Confronted with this suddenly masked duo, the girl gaped at us. Obviously, the McDonald's hospitality menu said nothing about how to deal with a situation like this. She had been starting to form the phrase that comes after welcome to McDonald's, but her mouth seemed to stiffen and the words wouldn't come out. Even so, like a crescent moon in the dawn sky, the hint of a professional smile lingered at the edges of her lips. As quickly as I could imagine, I unwrapped the shotgun and aimed it in the direction of the tables. The only customers there were a young couple, students probably, and they were face down on the plastic table, sound asleep. Their two heads and two strawberry milkshake cups were aligned on the table like an avant-garde sculpture. They slept the sleep of the dead. They didn't look likely to obstruct our operation. So I swung my shotgun back toward the counter. Altogether, there were three McDonald's workers. The girl at the counter, the manager, a guy with a pale egg-shaped face, probably in his late 20s, and a student type in the kitchen, 
a thin shadow of a guy with nothing on his face that you could read as an expression. They stood together behind the register, staring into the muzzle of my shotgun, like tourists peering down an Incan wall. No one screamed, and no one made a threatening move. The gun was so heavy I had to rest the barrel on top of the cash register, my fingers on the trigger. I'll give you the money, said the manager, his voice hoarse. They collected it at 11, so we don't have too much, but you can have everything, we're insured. Lower the front shutter and turn off the sign, my wife said. Wait a minute, said the manager. I can't do that. I'll be held responsible if I close up without permission. My, my wife repeated her order slowly. He seemed torn. You'd better do what she says, I warned him. He looked at the muzzle of the gun atop the register, then at my wife, then back at the gun. He finally resigned himself to the inevitable. He turned off the sign and hit the switch on the electrical panel that lowered the shutter. I kept my eye on him, worried that he might hit the burglar alarm. But apparently, McDonald's don't have burglar alarms. Maybe it had never occurred to anybody to attack one. The front shutter made a huge racket when it closed, like an empty bucket being smashed with a baseball bat. But the couple sleeping at their table was still out cold. Talk about sound sleep. I hadn't seen anything like that in years. 30 Big Macs for takeout, said my wife. Let me just give you the money, pleaded the manager. I'll give you more than you need. You can go buy food somewhere else. This is going to mess up my accounts and I... You'd better do as she says, I said again. The three of them went back into the kitchen area together and started making 30 Big Macs. The student grilled the burgers, the manager put them in the buns, and the girl wrapped them up. Nobody said a word. I leaned against the big refrigerator, aiming the gun toward the griddle. The meat patties were lined up on the griddle like brown polka dots sizzling. The sweet smell of grilling meat burrowed into every pore of my body like a swarm of microscopic bugs. The McDonald's people sneaked glances at the muzzle of the shotgun. I scratched my ears with the little fingers of my left hand. My ears always get itchy when I'm nervous. Jabbing my finger into the ear through the wool, I was making the gun barrel wobble up and down, which seemed to bother them. It couldn't have gone off accidentally because I had the safety on, but they didn't know that, and I wasn't about to tell them. My wife counted the finished hamburgers and put them into two small shopping bags. Fifteen burgers to a bag. Why do you have to do this? The girl asked me. Why don't you just take the money and buy something you like? What's the good of eating thirty Big Macs? I shook my head. My wife explained. We are sorry, really, but there weren't any bakeries open. If there had been, we would have attacked a bakery. That seemed to satisfy them. At least they didn't ask any more questions. Then my wife ordered two large Cokes from the girl and paid for them. We're stealing bread, nothing else, she said. The girl responded with a complicated head movement, sort of like nodding and sort of like shaking. She was probably trying to do both at the same time. I thought I had some idea how she felt. My wife then pulled a ball of twine from her pocket. She came equipped. 
and tied the three to a post as expertly as if she were sewing on buttons. Dissolving into my blood and circulating to the farthest corners, then massing together inside my hermetically sealed hunger cavern, clinging to its pink walls. A pail of white wrapped burgers is growing nearby. I wanted to grab one and tear into them, but I could not be certain that such an act would be consistent with our objective. I had to wait. In the hot kitchen area, I started sweating under my ski mask. She asked if the cord hurt, or if anybody wanted to go to the toilet, but nobody said a word. I wrapped the gun in the blanket, she picked up the shopping bags, and out we went. The customers at the table were still asleep, like a couple of deep sea fish. What would it have taken to arouse them from a sleep so deep? We drove for half an hour and found an empty parking lot by a building and pulled in. There we ate hamburgers and drank our Cokes. I sent six Big Macs down to the cavern of my stomach and she ate four. That left 20 Big Macs in the back seat. Our hunger, that hunger that had felt as if it could go on forever, vanished as the dawn was breaking. The first light of the sun dyed the building's filthy walls purple and made a giant Sony Beta Ad tower glow with painful intensity. Soon the whine of highway truck tires was joined by the chirping of birds. The American Armed Forces radio was playing cowboy music. We shared a cigarette. Afterward, she rested her head on my shoulder. Still, was it really necessary for us to do this? I asked. Of course it was. With one deep sigh, she fell asleep against me. She felt soft and as light as a kitten. Alone now, I leaned over the edge of my boat and looked down to the bottom of the sea. The volcano was gone. The water's calm surface reflected the blue of the sky. Little waves, like silk pajamas fluttering in the breeze, lapped against the side of the boat. There was nothing else. I stretched out in the bottom of the boat and closed my eyes, waiting for the rising tide to carry me where I belonged. Translated by J. Rubin All right, that was The Second Bakery Attack by Haruki Murakami. I really like that story. I think it's brilliant. I think it's funny how they went about rationalizing, or rather the wife rationalizing that they needed to go and do this. Um, yeah. Let me know what you think. Email me at javasipsandbiscotti at gmail.com or hit me up on Patreon or on my Instagram. Um, that's at charlier.mendel. And yeah, let me know what you thought of The Second Bakery Attack by Haruki Murakami. I thought the book, or I thought the story was funny. Um, I thought it was brilliantly written. The imagery and descriptions are phenomenal. I only wish that I could 
drum up analogies as well as uh, Murakami does. But yeah. So I hope you enjoyed episode 5 and join me for episode 6. I think I'll be reading uh, a folklore from my hometown and I Mm, if I can turn my movie that I was in into a digital copy, I will post it on Patreon. Um, during my early 20s and my time in college, I starred in a few films, and one of them was a mockumentary about the Black Angel of Iowa City, Iowa. And... It was pretty fun. So if you would like to see Charlie in a movie, stay tuned. I think maybe episode six, maybe episode seven, uh, depending on when I can get this digital format on the internet. Um, yeah, so stay tuned. Keep the lookout for that. Otherwise, I'll probably keep reading more short stories as I find them. And again, email me any short stories that you might write or short stories that you might have read and I'll be more than glad to read them on air. So without further ado, I hope you have a good rest of your day. This has been Java.